This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. The science of archaeology is amazing. A recent zooarchaeological paper reports the sleuthing work of an interdisciplinary team of researchers that documented the diet of the ancestral Pueblo people of the American Southwest. Their clues were bone fragments no bigger than the size of your pinky, skeletons of fish that were eaten over 700 years ago. They calculated that those fish were far larger than their counterparts today. And they noted that the diet of their descendants, the Hopi, Zuni, and other tribes, no longer consumed this nutritional element. This study pulled together approaches from archaeology, anthropology, and climate science to reveal new insights into both indigenous cultures and past environmental characteristics of this bioregion, knowledge that might help us understand the impacts of climate change in the future. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Dombrowski from the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center in Cortez, Colorado. John, welcome. Hi, Nalini. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Um, John, I found your study on changes in diet of the ancestral Pueblo people just a fascinating piece of research, um, especially as our own climate is also rapidly changing. But, but before we get into your paper, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Um, John's research is focused on interactions between humans and their environments from the past to the present across the globe. His focus is on North American prehistory in the southwestern United States, and he uses approaches of traditional and cutting-edge archaeological techniques, as well as principles of data science in his research. Um, John, before we get into the specifics of your study, can you place this research project in the context of archaeological research, and especially in the, the subfield of zooarchaeology? by maybe telling us a few of the major questions that you and your colleagues address. Yeah, sure. So zooarchaeology um, is the study of animal remains from archaeological sites um, to understand what people were eating in the past, how they incorporated animals into their daily lives, um, maybe into rituals or ceremonies, things like that. So we generally say we study human-animal interaction and like I said before, one of the main things that zooarchaeologists are very interested in is understanding how what the diet of people in the past. Um, and so how do people make decisions about food and how do people make decisions about food in the environmental contexts they find themselves in? Um, and our zooarchaeologists are really interested in comparing this across cultures, through time, all, all over the globe. Um, and so... That's kind of how this study uh, fits into zooarchaeology, is understanding uh, diet kind of change through time in one region of the U.S. Southwest. Great. Well, um, let's get to your paper, which was published in the Journal of Archaeological Science early this year. Um, it reports new findings about the diet of the indigenous people who lived in the American Southwest and how their diet and environment differed from present day descendants of those peoples. And, you know, very often listeners to Undisciplined uh, recognize that great science is done when a researcher builds on the work of others. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about the foundation of the work of your study. Um, where has this been done and, and how embedded is that? Let's, we'll talk about your new method uh, in a minute, but I'd like to hear about the basic background of your work. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. So uh, I have to give a little bit of background on this um, to talk about kind of the, the, the shoulders I'm standing on, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, one of the things is I would say that in terms of the topic of 
U.S. Southwest zooarchaeology, um, understanding ancestral Pueblo fishing is probably the, was the most low-hanging fruit there is. Um, and so I definitely capitalized on that for my dissertation uh, because there's a myth that is going around or has been going around for decades now, which is that ancestral Pueblo people did not fish. So there was really not much work, concerted work, on this topic um, to begin with. It was, it was spread out through the literature and sentences and paragraphs. And so my kind of work is one of the first to systematically go through and show, you know, that ancestral Pueblo fishing is actually a thing and it's a thing that matters. But one person that I am indebted to is Dee Dee Snow, Cordelia Snow. She uh, actually did the first systematic review of where fishes are recovered from from archaeological sites in New Mexico. Um, and so I, I was able to really use her work and say, jump off from that and say, okay, now I can go to these sites and investigate and ask some, some deeper questions. Um, I was wondering if you could describe the techniques that you and your team developed, this 3D scanning technology that allows you to calculate using the what you call the centroid size that allowed you and your team to estimate the body size of past animals from fragmented bones. I mean, it sounds like a miracle to me, but could you explain that technique in, in sort of terms that I can understand and why it was important to use that in, in this study and maybe even other studies? Yeah, um, I'll try to break this up into little parts here. Um, the, uh, so the first thing to understand is what 3D geometric morphometrics is. It sounds really fancy, um, but what it is, is you just take an object or a 3D surface scan or something like that, and you it's a way to measure shape and compare shape between multiple objects, whether it be a fish or you know a, a toy or a mug or something like that. And you take landmarks, which are just, you take a, basically put a point on this object and it gives you an X, Y, and Z coordinate. And so what you can do is you can take these landmark configurations and compare them between multiple objects to, to have a really objective understanding of shape, to measure shape in three dimensions. So what we did here was um, we scanned all these reference specimens from, the, from museums of fishes, of known fishes, and then we compared them to archeological ones. And so the, the idea here is that normally how zooarchaeologists go about doing this is they will go to that no, the known specimens, the skeletal specimens, and they'll measure with calipers in one dimension of a bone. And then they'll come up with an equation that relates to the body size of this organism, whether it be weight or length. And then what you do is you go to the archaeological specimens and you measure those with your calipers and then you plug in that measurement and you get, you know, the body size of this organism is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I studied trees and we, we do the same kind of things, but uh, we're using allometry, you know, using this relationship between measurements of different sizes. So we can take the diameter of a, of a tree at breast height. And then after having done many other measurements of many trees, we can actually extrapolate to what the height is or the biomass is and so forth. So it sounds like a similar kind of thing that you use in your discipline of zooarchaeology is what we do in forest ecology, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly the same in terms of allometry, right? The relationship between these different measures of organisms and their size, uh, or however you define size. To, to talk about how we applied this to the body, this body size, developing this new technique, 
we had a really interesting conundrum that this was this was tailored to. So in these ancestral Pueblo sites, fish remains are not usually super abundant, right? That's how this myth about ancestral Pueblo fishing not being a thing was perpetuated. When, pe- when people were excavating these sites, they'd calculate the number of kinds of bones there were, and they'd say, oh yeah, you know, site by site, there's not a lot of fish at my site, so it wasn't very important. And so one of the things that I pointed out was, while they're not abundant at your site, they're, you know, of low abundance, they're commonly low abundance across sites in this region, and there's a pattern here that we need to understand. So with that, we, um, we had a particular problem of, okay, we don't have a lot of specimens, so we really need to maximize the amount of samples we can estimate body size from. And we can't rely on traditional linear measures, right? Because sometimes they're just not present. These bones are fragmented. They're archaeological. So uh, we had to figure out a way to maximize sampling efficiency. And one way to do that is with 3D scans, because you also get an extra Z dimension or X and or Y and Z dimension. Um, and then you can use your reference specimens um, to dynamically try to calculate these kind of body size equations from. So that's what we were trying to do here. Your paper describes the diet of ancestral Pueblo people during the later pre-Hispanic period, which was about, from what I understand, about 1300 to 1600. And I was wondering if you have any idea what the population and the population density was at that time um, and was the culture intact, so to speak, at that time? You know, in terms of, you know, actual population estimates during this time in the middle Rio Grande, I don't have them exactly in my mind, but uh, I can give you kind of an idea where I'm currently situated now in the Mesa Verde region around Mesa Verde National Park. You know, this this area was occupied just before this time period that this study focused on, this paper focused on. And what we say here in the Mesa Verde area, you know, the ancestral Pueblo people were farmers. Um, they lived in large villages. And so what we say here in the Mesa Verde area was at the, at the time of peak population of, for ancestral Pueblo people in this region. It was about the same as it is today in Cortez, Colorado. Oh, wow. Gosh. It's pretty amazing. So there, these sites yeah. are very large. Um, they're larger in this later period that this uh, paper focuses on. I see. Okay, great. Well, now I'm readjusting my, my visual image of, of people that were there at that time. Um, and I have another question, which maybe sounds silly, but where where do you find these bones? Are they in particular places at these village sites? Like, are there middens or trash piles? Like, how do you know where to even start looking for these bones? That's, that is not a silly question, Nalini. That, oh, is, that is the question, right? We're all, about, <laughs> we're all about context and provenience and archaeology. And so, you know, I, yeah, we, you know, this is really important. And the majority of the bones that I looked at were what we call secondary refuse deposits, which is just a bunch of jargon to say these were initially part of a midden, right? So like, you know, you could maybe think about it as like a trash pile, a discard pile. And then this midden was then taken and put into abandoned rooms. When you're excavating in certain rooms in the Southwest, you can be digging through, you know, trash, fill, what we call it, fill. And it could have been from the midden that was outside and brought back in to clear that midden. Or it could be that the room was just used as a midden. So the direct answer is it's mixed, but mostly it is from midden contexts of some kind. 
And I, I imagine that these bones are very old. I mean, if the fish were consumed in, say, 1300 or 1400, you know, that means that they're over 700 years old. And I, I think of fish bones as being very delicate. So I'm wondering, how are they preserved? This is a great question, too. And it's one that I get a lot um, from anyone who still wants to kind of hold on to this notion that, you know, fishing isn't very important. They'll say, well, fish are really, you know, they don't preserve well. So do you even have an accurate, you know, sample? Um, and to them, I say, yeah, I do have an accurate sample because the fish that we're studying are very robust. Um, they have skeletons. They're about the body size of, say, a jackrabbit in some instances. And they, they have very thick skeletal elements, very thick bones. So we have pretty good preservation. Uh, I did some kind of work on sh shape analysis for my dissertation showing where like kind of a bad preservation zone would be uh, when we think about shape and then what shape these, uh, what condition these bones are in. And they're very well preserved. Yeah, I, I never would have imagined that, you know, uh, you know, that they could be preserved over this enormous length of time. You also made the case that the ancestral Pueblo were selectively catching large fish, not just all of them. And I'm wondering what evidence you base that on. Yeah, so the the what we kind of the the steps in logic and the the kind of discussion of the paper is the idea here is that they're using these non-targeted methods, right? So they're taking uh, kind of what we would call, and jargony, uh, ca a catastrophic profile of fishes that are in a river. So they're getting almost everything that's in a river, and almost everything that's in that river is a big fish. So that's, and you'll look that I have some of these graphs that show this kind of distribution of body size. Um, and so what I am arguing is that there's an actual environmental link to why people are fishing at this time. And my, my argument is, is that ancestral Pueblo people knew not only if they went fishing that they'd get something so that this resource was stable, but it was also a, they would get something that was a little bit bigger. So they'd get a little more calories, a little more bang for their buck. Um, and it's this mix of different kind of foraging or food getting logics that's going on at this time, stability and um, energy maximizing kind of behavior. In your paper, you also mentioned that the distribution of fish sizes is different than it is today, that there were larger numbers of large fish that were available. And I'm wondering what it was about the environment that made them larger then than they are now. Yeah, so that's that's a really critical linking argument um, that you've picked up on there, Nalini. And that is the idea at this time is that why, why people leave the Mesa Verde area, where I am now, they actually go down to the middle Rio Grande, the northern Rio Grande regions, and where Hopi and Zuni are today, these, the Pueblos of Hopi and Zuni. Um, and that drought is one of uh, an important factor, not the only factor, but an important factor of why people left. Remember, these are farmers that they left the Mesa Verde area. The idea is, my idea was that there's a, there, the environmental conditions were a little bit better in the middle Rio Grande and specifically with aquatic environmental conditions. And so basically the linking argument is that things were wetter in the river at this time. Um, and that's why there was more habitat space. There was different food connections, which we used with some of our previous work, stable isotope work. Um, and that is what led to these bigger fishes. I, I see from the acknowledgement sec uh, section of your paper, and also you mentioned that this, this work was funded by the National Science Foundation. And I know that NSF and many scientific funding agencies are increasingly interested in 
the research impacts of, 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 of studies like this? What does the research mean to society? And I know that NSF requires that each proposal to them have what they call a broader impacts section. That is, what, were, what are the impacts of the research that you do? And so I'm wondering what you and your colleagues carried out that fulfilled this idea of what are the research impacts or the broader impacts of your work? Oh, it's a fantastic question. So not only, so I had that one, you know, one of the larger kind of impacts is, you know, really kind of understanding, uh, like I said before, these decision-making processes in different parts of the world at different times in these environmental contexts. But one of the other ones and a really big one that we wrote about in that broader impact section is that we also don't have a good idea about how desert fishes in the American Southwest um, and imperiled fauna right now, how what their their you know ecosystems were like, what their food webs were like, what kind of fish were there, and we we call this we call these baseline conditions, right, which are really important for conservation biologists. If you're talking about change through time, what reference point are you using? And so one of the things by looking at fish ecology to understand human ecology. What we can do is provide some baseline measures for conservation ecologists. We can talk about what fishes were there or how they interacted with other fishes and what they ate, what fueled their food webs. I was wondering if you have, and you and your team have been able to share the results of this study and, and related studies with the indigenous people who are related or descended from these ancestral Pueblo populations and wondering how that communication might happen. You know, this this work came out, um, this was, re, you know, when I was working on this and one of my re, re, well, previous papers, rather, um, came out during the pandemic. And right before the pandemic, I believe it was Santa Clara Pueblo, which is located um, kind of around Santa Fe for your for your listeners, um, kind of in the what we call the northern Rio Grande region. Um, they expressed some interest to one of my previous co-authors on a previous paper, and they were really you know, interested in this work. And one of the reasons that they are interested in this work is because, you know, then this is a larger impact of this, of this kind of fishing research in general is resource use and autonomous resource use is really important among tribal communities, right? So how water is managed and the different interactions that there were in the past matter to these kinds of arguments today. Um, and these, policies that are put into place. So you can imagine a world where, say, the, you know, Santa Clara Pueblo is saying, well, we don't really agree with the conservation um, strategies that you're putting in place for fishes around the Pueblo. And then you can imagine maybe someone saying, well, you, you, you know, ancestral Pueblo people didn't fish. Well, this research, you know, and so what does it matter to you? And the idea here is, well, <laughs> well they did fish and we, they you know, were demonstrating that and that Indigenous people need to be at the table for these kinds of discussions. So that's kind of one of the, you know, interests that um, the Pueblo community has taken. But, you know, to be completely frank, it's something that I need to work on more. Um, and it's something that I'm currently working on here at Crow Canyon Archaeological Center um, is bringing Indigenous voices and Indigenous scholars more fully into zoo archaeology in this region. Um, and so it's something I think about a lot and will be an important part of my future um, and current work. John, that's, uh, I, that I'm really impressed with that. I admire your desire to do that. And I'm sure that you will find the mechanisms to, to make that kind of 
engagement, that two-way communication uh, possible and, and productive. That, that's fantastic. Um, I'd like to circle back just uh, again to the logistics of your study. Um, you concluded your paper with this statement. You said, um, animal body size reconstruction is a versatile tool in the zooarchaeological toolkit. We hope to have increased its versatility to answer new questions in a range of archaeological situations. And I'd love to know what you and your team are planning to work on next. Oh, wow. So in terms of the body size work, one of the things that I'm you know, thinking of doing right now, working with some other fantastic scholars, is applying this kind of body size work, not only to fishes, um, but to um, rabbits, <laughs> which there's, I could go off on and talk about, but I won't, um, to reconstruct their body size and think about um, their how to identify them in the past, but also with, with fish to go to different coastal environments um, that are of conservation concern and start applying this there. Um, so that's one thing that's, you know, uh, kind of on the, in progress. Um, but in terms of this kind of fishing project, the next thing I'm actually leaving on Sunday to go to Santa Fe for two weeks to go into collections um, and look for uh, all these fish bones from these archaeological sites. And I'm looking to reconstruct um, the date at which these fishes were fished for, so to radiocarbon date them. Um, and so my goal is to build a chronology of fishing in this region so that when people say, oh, fishing wasn't really a thing, I can kind of give it to them and say, oh, no, here, here's its history through time and exactly when it occurred. That's fantastic. That sounds fantastic. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to sort of end our conversation to ask more about you and your career. You know, I'm sure that many of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, are thinking, oh, my God, what, you know, what a great job this guy has. How could I do what he's doing? And I'm wondering if you have any advice or any guidance for those folks. Yeah, you know, I can think of kind of two pieces of, of advice that might, you know, sound opposed to one another, but I think it's important to try to keep them in in your head at the same time for anyone that's, you know, thinking about going to grad school or anything like that. Um, and one of the first piece of advice, and I'm interested in your input on this, Nalini, is one of the things that I've noticed with working with younger scholars, younger than me, um, is that there's this kind of, there, there's FOMO, right? There's this fear of missing out. And so one of the things that I've noticed is that younger scholars are way more hesitant to commit to research projects. And I don't think it's fair to call this apathy or anything like that. I actually think this, this is a strategy, right? Not committing necessarily is a strategy in, a, in an age of information, they're constantly being bombarded with information and it makes sense to be dynamic, but what's important is to commit on a research project, right? Um, to really bite down on something. So did, have you noticed that with students? You know, I, ha I as even as you're speaking, John, I, I was just thinking, my gosh, you know, the last three or four student committee meetings, you know, especially early, early stage graduate students have really exemplified that thinking, oh, well, I could study this. Oh, wait, I could study that. I could study this. And there's data available. And, and so there's almost a paralysis that sets in, I think, um, before that, as you said, you know, incredibly critical commitment happens in graduate students as they embark on their, on their research. Right. So, you know, I think that one, on one hand, you got to commit to something, to a project or a question or answering a set of questions. 
but they don't need to be perfect. They don't have to be everything you're interested in. It has to be something that you can see getting done, right? And, and then on the other hand, you do need to be a little bit dynamic. And what I call this is working backwards and forwards. So what you're doing is thinking about your previous goals that you set for yourself. You're thinking about where you are now, and then you're thinking about how you're going to get there. And so you have to constantly relate yourself to the future and to the past, um, which can, can also lead to a little bit of paralysis if you're constantly worried about that. But it's a way to be dynamic in, in an informed way. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I kind of think about doing is setting goals weekly or biweekly and monthly or yearly and checking in on them. So the two pieces of advice summed up, commit to something, but also be dynamic because things aren't perfect and you do have to take advantage of things in research. Right. That's excellent. I love that. The big picture and the small picture, both at the same time. That's great. That's really great. Well, John, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. I, I really enjoyed learning learning about not only the specifics of your study, but also your own kind of research outlook and outlook and your plans for the future. So we at Utah Public Radio wish you the very best for your work in the future. Thanks so much, John. Thank you so much for having me, Nalini. It was a pleasure. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.